Welcome, listeners. It is Halloween. Yep, that time already. The time for celebrations across many cultures. And today, I share the story of Halloween itself. I'm going to jump headfirst into what makes Halloween what it is today and bring you with me. It's time for a research episode. I'm going to cover off some pretty key topics about what Halloween is, what it is to me, Halloween's cultural roots, and the merging of two key cultures, Christianity, Celtic tradition, and pagan beliefs that planted the seed that grew into what modern-day Halloween is now. Alongside all of this, I'll be exploring the festival Samhain, the pagan deities and gods, and the aspects of Halloween that we enjoy but may not really know where they originate from and loads more questions, and some interesting stats about modern-day Halloween. Some surprising, and some not-so-surprising. <laughs> I'm pretty much throwing everything I can into this episode. Now, you know I give my all to these research episodes, but if I miss anything, screw up a word, let me know. I'm sure you will. <laughs> if you have something to add, please leave a comment. And if you ever want to reach out to me, feel free to contact me via email at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. Or again, leave a comment. Now, in Halloween spirit, I have my chai pumpkin spice tea. Ooh, it's strong. Perfect for this episode. And I hope you have your own tea as well. <laughs> Maybe not as strong as this one, perhaps. <laughs> Goodness, I can feel the Halloween in this drink. Now, let's dig in. So what is Halloween to me? My understanding and my exposure to Halloween through pop culture. Well, Halloween as an Australian was and still is a mixed bag. We haven't really adopted the American starlings of having houses adorned with skeletons, monsters, pumpkins, creatures of the night, but I wish we did. Having just arrived home and started recording this, there are no kids around. I drove by 20 or 30 houses just now and none of them have Halloween decorations. We just don't have any of that where I am. And I'm not in some outback, isolated area. I'm relatively close to the city. Our streets are quiet, and rarely is anyone letting their kids out at this time of night. I've only seen one or two kids walking around, and no door knocks yet, around this time. So what is it right now? It's 5.28, so there's still some time. But people at work have been commenting on Halloween and how their kids are dressing up, so maybe it's just localized, or the times are shifting. It is definitely a sign, though, of how things have changed regarding the security of our children. I think a big part of that adoption of Halloween still resides in the security of our children, but that isn't everywhere in Australia. Having gone to Melbourne and Sydney for an event two years ago, it was during this time after having dinner in Melbourne, and when heading back to the hotel, we witnessed Halloween as a live city event in full flight. The populace was practically bubbling with Halloween energy. There was a huge chunk of Melbourne that obviously loved Halloween. They had party buses full of people dressed up as giant cats, Freddy and Jason costumes, Harley Quinn, and Alice in Wonderland, skeletons, one-piece jumpsuits with gore all over them, and zombies all over the place, bundled together in a small pocket of Melbourne. Beyond that moment though, and out of that small part of Melbourne, there was nothing. But at least there is something there. This isn't to say, though, that they didn't take their partying to nightclubs and other houses in the area, but on the streets, limited beyond that. But I've got to ask, on your end, what's it like for you? I have no exposure beyond TV shows and movies about how people celebrate Halloween. So around where you are, let me know what you do. Do you celebrate Halloween in a big way or a small way? I'd love to hear it. 
Now, I must admit, over the past year though, there has been a steady rise in Halloween awareness, with admittedly, some children knocking at my door. I think about two or three years ago, but not a lot of them dressed up, none of them said trick or treat, and well, the spirit of the event doesn't seem to have stuck with Australians just yet. And I'm going to call out what I think, and others might call out as being obvious, as to the cause of this reluctant pace of ours. One, we're naturally not so quick to adopt stuff, that's just how us Aussies are. And secondly, the fear factor. The fear of children being abused, taken advantage of, attacked or given candy that will harm them. For example, candy with drugs in them, the infamous razor blades, that could be an urban myth I believe, candies with rat pellets, and candy bars with melted chocolate. Okay, the last one is my pet peeve. You don't give people chocolate that's melted. It's the biggest insult you can give to a child. Anyway. There are some statistics about the dangers our children face on Halloween. I'm not going to delve too deep into this because that is not what this episode is about, but believe it or not, I find stats really interesting. The link I've got in the episode notes is from www.bestplaces.net, titled Halloween Deadliest Day. It gives you an idea of how dangerous Halloween can be, but in a way that most people don't innately think about. For example, 115 child pedestrian fatalities occurred on Halloween over the past 21 years. There's been an average of 5.5 fatalities each year on October 31st, specifically to Halloween-related incidents. More than double the average number of fatalities, comparing it to other days. And of those deaths, 70% of the accidents occurred away from an intersection or crosswalk. And the two dividing age groups of fatalities were 12 to 15, which made up 32% of all child fatalities, and 5 to 8, making up 23% of all fatalities. So treat this as a friendly reminder, if anything, to ensure those kitties are well monitored, and if riding around from house to house, bring that helmet. I'll stop there, because I don't want to bring this episode to such a negative vibe about Halloween. It's just something interesting that I came across in my research about Halloween. And I'm discussing the risks here on purpose, because in Australia, our perception of safety and our kids is what's holding a lot of people back from having their kids knock on doors and walk the streets. Not to mention, we just got a scare here in Australia where people were putting in needles and pins in strawberries. Just crazy stuff like that. So that doesn't help. So the fear of people tampering with food is pretty high at the moment. But I do recognize how awesome it would be to have people in the streets knocking on my door and me obliged to give them candy instead of blasting my house full of eggs and toilet paper. If you want to see Australians get riled up, go to the Melbourne Cup events, or the AFL, or cricket. People dress up like crazy for that. Maybe not as demons and ghouls, but a different kind of crazy. For now though, Australia is taking its sweet time getting to that point, as it does with most things, but in time, we will embrace this celebration. It's a matter of when, not if. Let's jump into the more meatier component of this episode though. The history and culture. I've shared a bit of my understanding of our culture's perspective on Halloween, and now I'm going to take a deep leap into some other cultures, and learn, share, and put to the test both my research and your knowledge on the topic of Halloween. First things first, what does Halloween actually stand for? What does it represent? To do this, we need to understand the etymology, and etymology means the origin of words. So we have to understand the origin and wording of the word Halloween, and in particular, Two distinct naming conventions, so we've got Samhain, which is more of the pagan and Celtic festival celebratory names, and Halloween from a Christian perspective. It's important to understand that the word Halloween though dates to about 1745 of Christian origin, but the word Halloween itself 
comes from the Scottish term All Hallows Eve, an innate connection between the Celtic language and between the two belief structures. And this is actually a point of contention on who started Halloween first, where did the word come from, and who's the chicken and who's the egg. <laughs> but that's not too important for this episode. And as we learn more about Halloween, you'll see the similarities of both religions and belief structures and how they reflected each other. I see the word Halloween and what it stands for as a unison between those two belief structures, Christianity and the Celtic beliefs, rather than a dividing tool on who started it when and did what. But the unison of the word Halloween between these two didn't happen innately. It took time and many, many influences by hundreds and thousands of people to make Halloween what it is now. I won't get ahead of myself just yet though, let's start with the Christian names that you may have heard in your own culture. We've got Halloween, of course, Hallows Even, Hallows Evening, Hallow-en, and I think en refers to the Scottish term for even or evening, All Halloween, All Hallows Eve, and All Saints Eve. From both cultures, the 31st of October is the starting point for Halloween. Now this is important listeners and we'll get back to this. But these names all align themselves to the Western Christian feast of All Hallows Day. In other words, All Saints Day. The word Hallows, by the way, refers to the word Saint. This is actually a celebration that starts on the 31st of October and goes to the 2nd of November. In remembrance of saints known and unknown, those that have departed, and martyrs. It is on the 31st where the vigil of All Souls Day takes place. Now this, folks, is the link. On All Souls Day, 31st of October, is the commemoration of those souls that have departed to the next world, and where the Western society attributes a large chunk of its focus on death and representation of moving on and departing at a celebratory level from the 1900s onwards. A sort of initial foiree into the Halloween-esque approach as dressing up the dead or mourning the dead. It's some kind of recognition of those that have departed this world. When I say representation, that's purely from a Christian standpoint. And why have I chosen Christianity to be a large part of Halloween's representation? Because Pope Gregory IV switched All Hallows Day to the 1st of November, which coincided with the same date as Samhain. He did this on purpose, but not for the reasons that many may think. Now here we see two unique actions take place. The recognition of the Pope acknowledging Celtic influence, the Celtic people, their tradition, and how both events commemorate the dead. It's this communication and understanding in a largely Christian population that brings Halloween closer to its current day format. Knowingly or unknowingly, this was the beginning to shaping Halloween to what it is today. By merging the two cultures and having both events on the same day, and ultimately sharing their culture. Consequently, each influenced each other, and that's without taking into account what we will cover later regarding immigration of the Scottish and the Irish. The sheer volume of that immigration just demonstrates the power of that cultural shift innately in a population. So what is this second event that Pope Gregory IV aligned on All Hallows Day? That event was actually a festival, Samhain. And Samhain is actually a critical influence on the pumpkins that you see in your doorsteps and the candles that sit inside them the trick-or-treating, the candy being handed out, and the costumes that people wear nowadays. Those activities originated straight from Samhain. But not all of them, and not 100%, and the information surrounding that, and the dates allocated to that information, is blurry at best. Don't forget, it's a merging of cultures, so 
the point at which one reaches over the other is a bit blurry. We know each one had their own set of activities, and later we'll find out how close they were, and not due to theft, but just due to process and rituals. And speaking of process and rituals, what's so different about Samhain? What actually is Samhain? Other than us right now knowing that it's Celtic and Pagan traditions and beliefs, well, that brings us nicely to the Festival of Fire, or the Summer Festival, Samhain. Spelt S-A-M-H-A-I-N, but pronounced Samhain. Samhain represented the end of summer, and has evidence supporting the fact that it was derived from Pagan origins. On October the 31st to the 1st of November, Samhain was a period where livestock, and particularly cattle, were brought back from their summer lands, and when the livestock was set for slaughter, for winter's food. This was also a time for feasting, holding meetings, drinking alcohol, holding contests, casting stones into the fire, renewing aspects of the Celtic lore, and making sacrifices to the gods. Sounds like an all-round good bit of fun, right? <laughs> the sacrificing and ritual component heralds Samhain back to its pagan roots, and this is critical because in understanding Halloween, we also need to understand what pagan or paganism is, to better understand the link that it has as a semi-silent partner in the festival and the celebrations of Halloween. So what is paganism? Pagans or paganness is a belief structure that is known as being polytheistic. Polytheistic means that they believe in many gods, or also known as deities. Gods and goddesses. So for the lovely listeners out there who adhere to the pagan rituals to this day, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you may believe in the moon goddess of Wicca, perhaps. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the term Wicca or Wiccans. Let's take a quick look at some deities that pagans could have worshipped to many, many, many years ago. We have Brighid, hearth goddess of Ireland, family life, home life, divination and prophecy. Kelech, ruler of winter, bringer of storms, winter bringer and the veiled one. Serununos, wild god of the forest. The Horned God, Fertility, Masculine Energy, and the Forest. And the Dagda, Father God of Ireland, Fertility and Knowledge, his name literally translates to the Good God. And to each of these deities is a specific prayer, and a method of prayer to that specific deity. This could involve certain ingredients, perhaps crystals, it really depends on the person performing the worship. Pagan worship is rich with rituals and methods of worship. And just from those deities alone, you may have inferred that there is a very, very close tie to the spirit of nature. The concept of deities and their embodiment of the natural world, the force of nature both in healing, destruction, purity, and more, all tie closely to the cycle of life. But there are two key takeaways from that sentence, spirits, cycle of life. And this is where Sarwin comes into play. So quick recap. We know the basics of where the word Halloween came from, the Christian representation, the basic Celtic influences in the word for Halloween, and we just learnt about Samhain, paganism, and the kind of activities that take place on the Samhain festival. Now I've done a very light touch on those topics on purpose, I don't want to get bogged down into too much detail, that's for another episode entirely, but what I wanted to do is give you a little bit of a summary so we can be better equipped in understanding Sarwin's role and Paganism's role in Halloween, and how this all intertwines with the Christian rituals and beliefs. So let's get back to Sarwin. 
Sawin was deemed the summer's end festival, with another festival called Kalen Gaif by the Britonic Celts. Sawin represented the end of summer, and Kalen Gaif the first days of winter. They are both referred to as kindred festivals, the two periods, the light and the dark, and that during this time, that is where the veil between our world and theirs is the thinnest, where spirits and fairies are able to traverse our world with less difficulty, where souls of the dead could visit family and offerings to their deities could be made in exchange for crop growth and fortunate seasons, amongst many other things like wisdom, health, purity and warding off evil spirits. And the really interesting takeaway from this part is that this was the time where the dead could revisit their families. And no, they wouldn't leave their door open and wait for their dead family member to arrive, or knock on the door for example. They would, however, place a seat at the table for them, for the departed family member or friend, shared dinner, and afterwards prayed, and let the games begin. The games that we play today were played back in the 19th century of Ireland also. Apple bobbing, for example, where you dunk your head underwater and use your mouth to bite into apples, actually had significant meaning back then, as apples used to represent immortality and otherworldliness, or hazelnuts were handed out or cooked up, and that in itself would be used for divination purposes and also as a request to deities for wisdom. Scrying, for example, otherwise known as mirror gazing, where you could use the mirror to view the future, not too far off from looking into a crystal ball. The burning of bonfires, for example, whose flames and smoke acted as cleansing agents and was also used as divination tools, bringing with it the power of growth, the heat to stave away the frost of winter. It was only later with Christianity's influence regarding the flame's use were used to keep evil spirits, and particularly, the devil away. But let's dig deeper into Celtic paganism, where we're going to see elements of our modern Halloween showing up in these old traditions. Have you ever heard of mumming? Or guising? Well, when you get dressed up in your favourite Halloween character, a zombie, a monster of some kind, well, these folks were doing it in Ireland and Scotland, the Isle of Man and Wales. Yep, in the 16th century no less. The Sarwen Festival was where it was at when it came to mumming and guising. That's M-U-M-M-I-N-G and G-U-I-S-I-N-G, a term used for those who would dress up and perform troops and acts during the festival. It was there that they also acted as Aoshi, souls of the dead, and where the dark, dead, and spirit-focused vibe regarding Halloween stemmed from. And now we can compare and contrast what the Christians did on their Halloween. The Christian populace would often dress up as the dead, the souls departed, shambling through the streets and moaning in mourning of the dead. Citizens would don clothing from all ranges of social strata and do their best to replicate the imagining of the dead or lost soul. In this act of remembrance, they would reach commiserations with those that have moved on. So between Sarwin and Christian's Halloween, we see a representation of both from this space. What's really interesting here is in wearing the clothes of the spirits you impersonated, or the souls that mimicked the dead. From both cultures, it was said that that brought you not only protection, but release from any souls or dark spirits. So when all the kiddies were running around wearing skeletons and ghost costumes, or all the populace was shambling around, creating their own version of the boogeyman and souls departed, that was their way of empowering and protecting the populace from evil spirits, and in particular with Celtic paganism, from the thin veil of the fae and creatures during that time. 
So now we're on a roll. We've had a look at dressing up, mumming or guising as they called it, but what of trick-or-treating? And giving out candy or gifts? Well, as expected, both Christianity and the Celtic paganism had their own branch of trick-or-treating that eventually coincided to what we see now. I think the Celtic pagan approach is probably the closest to what we have now. In Celtic paganism, there's this deity or god-like creature, and is often referred to as the Muk Ola, who some speculate refer to the deity Makala, the spirit of the sun and underworld. What would happen during Samhain is that a person dressed in a white mare costume would accompany young youths that would sing at your door. You would be asked to give a gift, but if you resisted and refused to give out the gifts, well, you'd be struck by misfortune by the Muk Ola. And this puts forward a strong case that the Celtic paganism culture developed that trick-or-treating approach. But there is a similar activity done by the Christians of that time. It was called souling, where a bell was rung in mourn of the dead, and a soul cake was provided in remembrance of those who have departed this world. Soul cakes are a small, round cake, and traditionally made just for All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Day, and All Souls' Day, specifically to commemorate the dead. It is an official Christian tradition. They would have people going from door to door, mainly children and the poor, singing and saying prayers. And they would sing, For the souls of the givers and their friends. This was actually continued from the medieval period up until the 1930s, and is seen as the alternate version of trick-or-treating. And because I know a lot of you out there are thinking, but stories, what are these soul cakes made of? <laughs> The soul cakes were filled with allspice, nutmeg, cinnamon, ginger, and other sweet spices, and raisins or currants that would be set atop in the mark of a cross, to signify that these were arms. And believe it or not, they were traditionally set out with glasses of wine on All Hallows' Eve as an offering for the dead. Goodness, the dead are really having a field day. Cakes, wine, what else do you need? And there's even a three-verse and one-chorus song created in 1891 that outlines the Soul Cake Ballad, of which I will not sing for you right now. <laughs> I'll add it in the show notes. Their own nod to those that have departed during the Old Souls period. So these Soul Cakes were their own nod to the trick-or-treat traditions that were taking place during that time. So we can see the link between Christianity and the Celtic pagan traditions in shaping our current-day Halloween. What about pumpkins with candles? In the 18th century in Ireland, in the Scottish Highlands, people would hollow out turnips and carve grotesque faces in them, using them as lanterns to ward off evil spirits. And do you know what they used to call them? Something that had me laughing for minutes. Mangle Wurzels. <laughs> Which basically stood for grotesque faces as lanterns. Oh, I love it. I love that kind of stuff. And the Christians had their own version of this. The Christians of the Middle Ages would carry out martyrs and effigies with hollowed out turnips and candles in them to ward off evil souls. These large festivals were called Danse Macabre, also known as the Hideous Carnival, and would proceed through the street past every house where court dancers would dress up as corpses from various social strata and locations. So from both Christian religions and the Celtic pagan beliefs, we get our trick-or-treat candy in the form of soul cakes and song. We have the customs from martyrs and guising to ward off evil spirits, and our present-day creepy pumpkins in the form of creepy, well-lit, well, turnips. For some reason, I have a newfound understanding for the comedy series Black Adder, 
where there is a servant character called Baldrick, who constantly mentions turnips. It must have been a thing back then. It's absolutely amazing though, on how much of both traditions coincide, and how each of them have influenced each other to bring us our current Halloween. Now the clincher is I don't have the exact dates beyond centuries as to when these customs were recorded, lost in time as it were, but it might give some point around discussion around Halloween and how people perceive Christianity in regards to their customs, as well as the shared customs brought into the holiday from the pagan festival, Sarwen. So despite both customs being similar, what was the driving force that brought both these customs together to create the Halloween we now know? One word, folks. Immigration. Of the almanacs recorded, which were old written annual schedules of the events to come annually during medieval times, the 18th century and early 19th century events did not list Halloween as an actual event. That isn't to say that Halloween never took place, but its representation regarding recordings is vague. But in saying that, traditions and customs that took place around those times demonstrated Halloween's prevalence during those periods. During the 17th century, the Irish and Scottish immigrated, and boy did they immigrate. From 1715 to 1775, over 200,000 people immigrated, with the largest number heading towards Pennsylvania. After 1783, 100,000 arrived in America, settling themselves in areas like Philadelphia and New York. Then, during 1815 to 1845, another 500,000 arrived, with 900,000 coming after from 1851 to 1999. So from the 18th century to the 20th century, 1.7 million Scottish and Irish people migrated to America, and with them brought their Celtic and pagan beliefs and traditions. And once immigrated, new ideas are shared, and new places of worship are created. The reasons for this immigration lie in the religious prosecution and the potato famine during those times, they were large players in the immigration from their country. So you can only imagine how much of an influence either culture would have on each other during those times. Marriages, families, all interweaving both customs deeply, shaping and crafting aspects of Halloween all the way from the 18th century to present day. Absolutely fascinating. So I've talked and talked about modern day society's version of Halloween, but I'd never really put my finger on it. So what is my understanding of modern day Halloween, or at least what could Halloween mean or be to most people? I imagine that Halloween is mainly a holiday and celebration of expression. An excuse to dress up and have fun and eat copious amounts of candy. I haven't heard of a better reason to have a holiday than that. Not the case for everyone, I understand. And there are people and listeners out there that still practice and worship paganism, and in their own way. Wicca being a great example of that. And of course, who else gets a fantastic holiday? The retailers, oh yes, it's a celebratory day for them as well. <laughs> it's jam-packed with commercialism, of course. Having 9 billion US dollars of planned expenditure in this year alone. The NRF, National Retail Federation, states, on average, that people are spending $86.79 on Halloween, with 175 million Americans planning to take part in Halloween festivities. Now, I was thinking to myself in doing this research, is Halloween slowing down? Are people spending less than they used to? What do you think? The answer, folks, is definitely not. In 2005, the US expenditure was set for $3 billion US dollars. 
Now we're currently at 9 billion, with 1 billion and 3 billion dollar spikes during 2008 and 2012 respectively. Now during this period, consumers are set to spend 3.2 billion dollars on costume purchases, 2.7 billion on decorations, 2.6 billion on candy, yum, and 400 million on greeting cards. Yep, those guys are still around and kicking. But what of the spirit of Halloween? Where has it gone? It is still there, just in a different form. Among all the 175 million celebrants involved, 70% of these celebrants will hand out candy, 50% will decorate their home, 45% will carve their pumpkins, will either throw or attend a party, 30% will take their kids trick or treating, which by the way is 52,500,000 children, with 21% visiting a haunted house, with 18% dressing their pets in costumes. That could be the biggest travesty of all. <laughs> Speaking of pet costumes, apparently 31.3 million Americans are planned to dress their pets, namely millennials, those between 25 and 34, and it's been on the rise over the last year alone from 16% to 20%. That's one year, a 4% increase in one year. So that's uh, 7 million people are now dressing up their pets in Halloween costumes. I'm amazed and impressed. So many pets waddling around in costumes. <laughs> and with that increase in the millions, that's a lot of dollary dues, mates. Do you know someone who does this, dresses their pets up in Halloween costumes? Good chances the answer is yes at this point. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, okay, we get it. It's big business, but what are the most popular costumes? What? That wasn't your question. Well, nonetheless, let's take a quick look. For children, they're guising mainly as princesses and superheroes. For adults, they are mumming as witches and vampires. Witches make up 10% of the total sales of adult costumes, with vampires being the closest at 3.7. Witches, I'm not even surprised that you represent that Halloween spirit. Bloody awesome, mates. For pets, hot dogs and pumpkins are the leading costumes, a sentence I thought I'd never say. And one particular costume, the spider dog costume, where there's like tiny little arms popping out of the sides of the dog while they wear the costume and it skitters along the ground, is steadily rising as well to take second place. So Halloween has evolved greatly over the past couple of centuries, and in this episode we've covered a lot of ground, albeit not too deeply, but a lot of it. We're kind of going for a sprint here. So here are the things that we've covered today. We've learned that Halloween is stemming from Celtic festivals which had pagan roots, that Christianity shared that date and that event with the Celtic populace, thanks to Pope Gregor IV. We saw them share similar ideas and traditions, as well as Christianity's own set of traditions on Halloween, as well as identify their own distinct traditions and beliefs, a snapshot of pagan culture, their gods and goddesses, and their link to Celtic culture, and ultimately Halloween. You got a snapshot of how Halloween is to me and my area of Australia, an idea of how deadly Halloween can be, the influence on culture through immigration, and what Halloween has inevitably become, both as a holiday, celebration, and culturally. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that I could share something that you may have not known about Halloween. Feel free to leave comments and let me know what you think. And this Friday, I'll be swinging back to storytelling, having almost reached my 350th episode. I am so excited. I can't wait or figure out what to do next. So join me then for more stories 
And if you have any other research topics you'd like me to check out, please email me or comment, and I'll take it from there. Happy Halloween, my ghouls and ghasts. Stay safe, eat so much candy you begin craving vegetables, and have a fantastic Sarwin as well. Till next time, folks. <laughs>